Quick note about this podcast episode today, we're going to be talking about a passage that contains some mature themes, so if you are a kid, hit pause and go talk to a parent before you listen. Hey, welcome to the Bible Savvy Podcast, a weekly conversation on how to understand, enjoy, and apply God's Word. I'm your host, Nikki Lucas, and I'm joined by teaching pastor Clayton Keenan and executive pastor Eric Ferris. We're about to jump into another passage from the book of Genesis, and we're looking at an odd passage this week. Clayton, do you want to tell everyone what we're talking about? Yeah, so we're going to be looking at Genesis 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a story uh, people may have heard the name of or kind of have a general reference to, but maybe have never dug into. Uh, and uh, it is going to have some mature themes, so uh, we're going to get into some controversial things and some things that uh, maybe aren't for younger ears, uh, but we're going to learn a lot of things. This passage is actually really helpful because it illustrates some really important principles when you're reading your Bible, uh, and in part because this is a story. It's a narrative passage of Scripture. So my, my question for uh, you guys today is this. Uh, when you are reading a book, what what genre of book do you tend to read? Narrative. Fiction, nonfiction? Yeah, fiction, fiction. Fiction? Yeah. I do not read for entertainment, so everything I read is always trying to learn something about some topic. So nonfiction, typically? Yes, nonfiction. Yeah. So I, I, I read primarily, I read a lot of stuff. <laughs> I read a lot of stuff. Uh, my two uh, go-to genres, though, are usually science fiction and history. Um, and it's very important for me to keep straight which of those I'm reading, because uh, if I read science fiction as if it were history, I'm going to be a very confused person. And if I read history as science fiction, uh, I'm going to be expecting all sorts of things that would not be included in that. Uh, and we know this naturally, right? Like when you're reading different uh, types of books, when you are reading different types of writing, you automatically switch to understand it based on what it is. So uh, a grocery list versus a poem versus uh, a letter from somebody, you read them with different kind of rules behind that. And the same is true in the in the Bible. Sometimes people open up the Bible, they expect it to all be the same sort of thing, but in fact, it's a lot of different types of things. So in this, we're reading a story and we need to know the rules of how to read a biblical story. Uh, we actually have some guidelines for this, some, some helpful tips that we've put together. If you go to BibleSavvy.com, uh, on the side you see uh, a tab that says Literary Setting, and there are, for each different major genre, there are some guides to uh, how to do that. So let, let me share with, what, uh, with you what we've uh, identified as some important rules for narrative. Uh, the first is this. When you're reading a narrative, try to summarize the major theme or lesson from the story. Uh, if you get bogged down into the details and try to really zero in on what does this one thing mean, you might miss the main idea and you might get kind of, you know, a warped picture of what, what this is really about. So try to sum it up. Um, it's not in the Bible, kind of like Aesop's fables, you know, you get to the end and it sort of just says, and this is what it means. Uh, so sometimes you got to think a little bit about what that is, uh, but usually there's kind of some major uh, things that it's getting at. Second tip is this, Every story in the Bible, remember that the real hero is God. It's God. So whatever the other characters are, you might have some good characters, some bad characters, people who are mixed or whatever. When it, when it comes down to it, the character that counts, the one who is always the good guy, always the hero, the one who matters the most is God. So always look for him, even if he's not mentioned as much as somebody else. Pay attention to what he's doing there. Uh, third is this, and this might be the most important tip when it comes to reading narrative in the Bible. Distinguish between what is descriptive and prescriptive. Okay, so descriptive is things that just describe what happened. Like, the, these are the events as they unfolded. Prescriptive means 
this is something you ought to do yourself. Like it's an example. It's a model. It's something that uh, you should take into your own life and do the same way. And uh, in stories in the Bible, there's actually far more descriptive than prescriptive. Uh, A lot of times we look at it and we say, oh, am I supposed to do that? When the reality is, no, that guy just happened to do that this time. And you're learning about it. Um, To know what is prescriptive, um, a lot of times what you're doing is you're remembering or you're looking at other places in the Bible which are very direct about what you're supposed to do, and you're using that to evaluate the story. Uh, Other times you are uh, simply uh, sort of uh, using spirit-guided uh, uh, intuition about the story, you can sense when it's portraying someone as uh, doing something virtuous and someone who's doing something bad. You can kind of get from the situation. So, But you got to pay attention and not just assume just because someone does something, you also ought to do that. All right, let me give you uh, the, the context leading up to this because it helps before we read the passage. Um, already in the book of Genesis, God has called a man named Abraham and his family and said, Abraham, I am going to change the world through you. It's kind of God's rescue plan for the world. Everything's gone wrong in the fall, but uh, God says this family is going to be the one that's going to turn the tide. Uh, But it's going to be a process here. So God is working with Abraham, and he's promised him, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a great land, and I want you to follow me where I lead. So uh, Abram, at the time, his name later becomes Abraham, um, leaves with his family, including his nephew, a guy named Lot, and they go to what will be the promised land, and they're traveling through the land. They don't, they don't live there. They don't own anything, but they're traveling through the land, and they've got kind of a big caravan with them. They got all their, 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 their servants and their livestock and all sorts of stuff, and before long, there's, there's not room for both of them to be together. So they say, let's split up. You take your stuff and people. I'll take my stuff and people, and Abraham says, all right, Lot, you get first pick. Which direction are you going to go? And Lot looks at some land off to, to one direction, and he sees it, and it says it looked to him like the Garden of God. So he's like, that looks like Eden. But then right after that, it says, but the people were very wicked. So this, you, this already has you, even before you get to the story, kind of ready for what's going to happen. Uh, Abram goes the other way, and uh, along the way, he's hearing about the wickedness of this place where Lot went to, these cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, along the way, God comes and visits Abraham, he actually sends some angels to visit him and says, uh, Abraham, uh, I'm about to go bring judgment on them. And Abraham says, but wait, what if there are some righteous people in the town? And I I think he's probably thinking of his nephew. And so uh, Abraham prays to God. He says, all right, look, if there's 50 righteous people in the town, would you promise not to destroy it? And God says, sure. Even if there's a lot of bad people, but there's 50 righteous people, I'll spare them. Abraham's like, oh, okay, maybe it's, maybe it's worse than that. So he, he kind of he uh, bargains him down. He's like, 45, 30, 20, 10. And God's like, sold for 10 people, I will spare the city. So this is the setup. Right before we get to this, he's like, if there are even 10 people, I'll spare them. That's not a lot of people uh, that, that aren't wicked. So um, this is where we're at. Uh, will God spare the city when he sends his angels to visit? Eric, you want to read it to us? The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. 
Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, don't stop anywhere in the plain, flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains, this disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to and it is small, let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well. I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw the dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. All right. Uh, There is a lot there. Uh, We are going to go into the observation phase of comma here. We're going to note what we see here in the passage. I want to clear the way uh, with one of these observations, because I'm guessing that a lot of people are are, uh, paying attention to this and thinking about this question. Um, It's the issue of the men of the city wanting to have sex with the men who had visited, the angels who had visited. And that automatically, especially in our culture, raises the question of homosexuality. And so a lot of people look at this and Uh, and see this story as one of those biblical passages that addresses the issue of homosexuality. And uh, even in kind of older language uh, that that gets used, uh, sodomy is sort of a shorthand for uh, gay sex. And so when people are looking at this, they're saying, is this a passage where people are going to come down harsh and condemn gay people? Um, Now, let me me kind of get two sides of attention here, okay? Uh, One side is this. Uh, The Bible is clear in other places 
that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that sex outside of marriage, including between two men or two women, is forbidden. That's not something that God permits. Those are found in other passages, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and a few other places. This passage, though, is probably not directly addressing that. It's obviously a factor. There's, There's something going on here. But one of the ways you know that this is not really about two men who fall in love and want to get married is the fact that in verse 4, it says, all the men from every part of the city, both young and old, surrounded the house to do this. So whatever they were doing, the, the odds of every single male in the town of Sodom being same-sex attracted and wanting to have sex with a man because that's their orientation is not very likely. That just that seems pretty far-fetched. It, it seems like the situation has something more to do with these outsiders came in, and it was a, an ancient thing, warriors uh, who had conquered other places or uh, you know, in different armies and that sort of thing, would often use um, rape as a way of humiliating the people that they had conquered, uh, the people that they were subduing. And it seems something a little bit more like that. Um, so th- this is one of those ones where people say, oh, look, this is a place where we can condemn that. There, there are places that address same-sex sin, but this is not one of them, and probably as Christians, we should not go to this passage when we're talking about that issue. It tends to be one that approaches the situation with harshness, uh, judgment, rather than uh, opening up for conversation with people, talking about what God's good designs for sexuality are. So that's, that's an observation about that, knowing that if we don't talk about that first, people will be thinking about it the whole time. Let's open it up to other observations that you guys might have for this. How in the world do you want us to follow that? So here, here is my, my uh, what was my thought? When I, when I listen to this passage being read and I just think about the scene unfolding, it is an out-of-control crowd. Mm-hmm. And, and it reminds me in Romans where it says there is, there is sin, there is behavior and attitude that is not the way that God designed us to live. But worse than that is people that applaud it. And that feels like what's going on here. Like this whole city just got so far away from God that they were, they were applauding one another and, and encouraging one another. And they were drumming up like this crowd scene that's so out of control and so sinful that in some ways it's hard to not get swept up in the crowd. It feels like, it feels like it's just kind of run amok. Yeah. Uh, the first thing that I noticed was the urgency that's conveyed in the story. So you, you read like phrases like, uh, you know, get them out of here in verse 13. And then we see variations of like, hurry, flee, get out, don't look back uh, through verses 14 through 22. But the one that really stood out to me is right at the beginning of the story. When Lot approaches these, these two men at the gateway, he says, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. And I thought, huh, okay, so so back in the day, people, when they would travel and they would pass through to a town, sometimes they would stay in the town square. And they would stay there overnight until the next morning. They would get up and they would continue with their travels. And putting that picture in my mind with the reputation that Sodom and Gomorrah had, when Lot uses those words, turn aside, there's an urgency in his phrasing because that's another way of saying, don't even go to the square. Like, stay away from it. Don't go there. Don't stay out in the open. Just get away from it. And then it says in verse 3, but Lot insisted so strongly that these men 
did go with him and go into his house. And so Lot knows that Sodom and Gomorrah was not a safe place to be because of how, pick, how wicked uh, the people were in that town. Another thing that jumped out to me in terms of observation is how it ends, pointing out that God spared Lot. And it's almost like it is assumed, of course, God is right to judge sin. Of course he would. And any, any act or any degree of mercy and grace to rescue people from that judgment shows not only God's righteousness and his judgment, but also his mercy and his grace. And we can sit on the human side of it and question it. Like, how, how is it this, this perfect balance of judgment and grace in this amazing God? And we don't fully understand how that all works out, but he seems to be able to execute it perfectly all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think you, you, you get that reinforced in verse 13 when it uh, talks about the outcry to the Lord against this people against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. That, that idea of an outcry is saying that actually something really needs to be done about this. The judgment side we often push back on, but to have the sense of th- there was a need to do this. If, if he ignored this, it wouldn't be good. It's not just like, oh, man, God gets, God gets angry. He gets ticked off. What is he doing? He's, you know, walking on eggshells around him. He's saying, no, people are crying out that this sort of place is, is wrong. It's destructive. It, it hurts people. Like, this is not good. Something has to be done about it. And God's actually being good by addressing this, this evil. Seems like from the human side, it doesn't matter which way God plays, we'll, we criticize, right? So, you know, if, if there is sin run amok or injustice, you know, people will shake their fist at God and say, God, why don't you do something about this? Why don't you step in and definitively take care of it? And then on the other side, if you talk at all about God's judgment or him definitively taking care of anything, then you say, God's a mean ogre, and I, I knew that God wasn't loving. And so it feels like no matter which way... God plays, humans are going to criticize. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, My next observation kind of led me to a question. So after Lot had heard that the city was going to be destroyed because of how wicked it was, in verse 16 it says that he hesitated and that the men had to grab him and his family's hands and take them out of the city. Why do you think Lot hesitated? Hmm. You know, I... I, I feel this tension when I look at the character of Lot. Like, there are details that point me in, like, two directions. Like, there's the there's the part where it's like he's sitting at the, the gate of the city, which my, my uh, NIV study Bible tells me is the place where people who are in charge or important in a city end up. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's kind of integrated in this town. Like, it's clearly his home now. He's not... Uh, wandering around like Abraham, kind of exploring the land. He's like found a place to settle down and made a life for himself. And his family clearly is there. He's kind of married his kids off to people in the town and things like that. So there's a part of him that says, wait a minute, wait, if I got to run from this, I'm hesitant because this feels like my life. Like even if Lot clearly recognizes like this is a bad place, it also feels like his place in mm-hmm. some way. And I think... I don't know. I can relate to that sometimes with things I know ought to change in my life, mm-hmm. um, feeling like, but this is this is kind of what I'm used to. You know, I'm hesitant. I don't know, as most Bible characters, how much Lot fully believed what was about to happen. Mm. Right. So, which is all of us. 
You know, even though they were like true believers, I believe everything I see in the Bible. If God speaks something to me, I want to say I believe it. But always in the back of your head, like, really? That's a pretty, like, to make a radical life move based purely on trust is sometimes tough to do. And I think most people, if they're honest, say they hesitate. There's, uh, there's one detail here I want to, before we move on to the, the next phase of comma, I want to hear your thoughts on. What do you do with the fact that when the, the guys want to, you know, take the angels, Lot says, well, take my daughters instead. Like, that's, that, that's, that's almost scarier than the, the mob wanting to attack somebody. Like, this is a father. What do you, what do, you do with that? Yeah, I was going to ask the same question, so I don't know. I was going to ask you because you guys are dads. <sighs> yeah, I mean, we're talking about gang rape. Yeah. Right? I mean, let's just call it what it is. We're talking about gang rape sitting at the front door of this guy's house and i see it on like two two sides of the coin he knows that what is about to happen is terrible and he can't let it happen and i also think that he's a bit of a coward and a punk and it's a desperate move um and then i wonder like is it like a did he think if he offered his daughters that the crowd would say, like, make, it would make them come to their senses? Like, please don't do this terrible thing. I mean, if you're going to be terrible, do this terrible thing to my daughters. And they go, no. Like, I don't know if he was bluffing like or a, if he was... Almost like saying, hey, you wouldn't do this to one of our own, right? So why would you do it to these people? Like, to shock them into to saying, oh, yeah, what are, what are we doing yeah, but for for sure, I think one of the traps we fall into when we read the Bible is we tend to either put characters in the Bible into the all yeah. good category or the all bad category. And so we, we see here where we say, okay, raping an angel is bad, but somehow raping his daughters is good. Like at face value, you could read the story that way. And then you get really confused. Like how could the Bible possibly be telling you that that's a good alternative? I don't think that's what the story is doing. I think what this story is illustrating is how unbelievably wicked and out of control this entire story is. Yeah. I think it goes back to that tip for reading narrative. God is always the hero. Uh, everybody else is either a bystander, a villain, so, like, so, or some mix of those, those kinds of things. Like You don't look at Lot and say, oh, there's a hero. You look at him and say, he screwed up just like us but he got caught up into this story where God is the hero. Hmm. Uh, and, and, and so we don't have to take it as a prescriptive thing, uh, but a descriptive thing. Uh, let, let's go to the message now. We're going to kind of flip the M's in comma today, uh, just because uh, the, the kind of meditation we might do out of this passage is a little different than sometimes. Uh, for a message, I just want to zero in on that, that urgency theme that Nikki identified. And uh, especially in verse 17, where, where it says, flee for your lives, don't look back. And so I, I took a message from that, which is flee from sin and don't look back. Flee from sin and don't look back. What do you guys think about that? I think the word flee is funny. Every time I, every time I, every time I see the word flee, it makes me want to say it in a high-pitched voice. Flee! <laughs> flee! Fleeing is like active. It is, it is being convinced that not only the course of action, but the results from this course of action are not going to bring God's best to my life. In fact, they could bring God's judgment or they could bring the ability for Satan, who is our enemy, 
to get a stronghold or a foothold in my life that is going to cause some serious destruction. Um, and so flee for me is don't even mess around. Yeah, it's drastic. Yeah, you have to take drastic measures in a situation like this before it gets too far, far gone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so often we're, we're, we're like, let's creep away from sin. Let's tiptoe away from sin. Let's, let's make some gradual moves. It's like, no, it's urgent. It's drastic. We got to flee. So here, here's what I want to do for the meditation, because it comes right out of this. I, I want us to take 45 seconds or so like we, we typically do, and I want us to think about that line from the, the passage, to kind of prayerfully uh, think over and ponder the line, flee for your lives, don't look back. But I want to put a personal edge on it. I, I want you to think, what do I need to do? What is God calling me to do to flee from sin? Well, now we get to the A and comma, which is application. And so here, here's what I want to ask you guys. Uh, we all need to flee from sin. It's always something that uh, we need to be doing, whatever our particular uh, temptation uh, that draws us is. But I want to ask the question, when you've got those situations, what do you actually do to flee? Like practically speaking, it's one thing to say, oh, I got to be urgent. But what does it look like for you guys in your life? Oh man, I have uh, I have two answers bouncing around in my head. So one of them is to be able to separate temptation from sin. I think I think sometimes Christians fall into the trap of thinking they're the same thing, but if we just remind ourselves that Jesus Himself was tempted in every way, but was yet without sin, it's helpful for us because I think many of us feel like. Like we should be stronger, we should be better, and that I shouldn't be tempted. And if I was a better Christian, I wouldn't be tempted. And that's just not true. Temptation is a part of life. And so to separate temptation from sin is important because sometimes just by merely being tempted, Christians start to wear shame and guilt when they haven't even sinned. Temptation is just what it is. It's temptation, right? And so I think, one, to separate those two is helpful because then... uh, Second, I can talk about my temptation with other believers more freely. And so if there are certain areas of my life where I am more prone to give into temptation, I can talk about it without shame and guilt because I want to live a God-honoring life. I want to live, I want to experience God's best for my life. Uh, And so I can talk about temptation without shame or guilt. Yeah. Uh, For me, it's it's keeping short accounts. Um, Is trying to be intentional about going through and doing kind of daily check of my day. Um, not letting it go get too far gone allows me to keep uh, a short record. How did I behave today? What did I say today? What did I do today? 
to anyone or even in private that could uh, cause me to sin or lead to that becoming a root in my life. Um, and then when I, when I identify those things, I take the time to identify those things. It's confession, spending time in prayer with God. It is having accountability, uh, you know, when you see patterns kind of creep up. Uh, so to me, it's keeping short accounts, not letting yourself get too far gone um, before you do something about it. Yeah, I think there's there's a real practical element of knowing where the times and the situations when you're weak. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, identifying the patterns of, oh, it's, you know, it's often like this when, when I, I fall to temptation or I feel strong temptation. Um, and, and making choices to not have, to minimize those situations. So sometimes there are situations you can't avoid being in. So if you know, whenever I interact with this person, I tend to, uh, you know, get angry or resentful or uh, respond to them in a certain way. You you might not be able to avoid that person, but if you know those are the situations, you can plan, all right, before I go in, this is when I stop and I pray through this. I prepare myself to be in that situation. Uh, or if it's a situation where you're, you're tempted uh, to indulge or engage in lust or any of those sorts of things, and you know, you know what? I watch that TV show. I can't do that. When, I, when I'm alone in this sort of situation, I can't do that. So you you make deliberate choices not to be in those things. Maybe you even have to give up something that for other people might be a good thing. So if you, you uh, struggle with uh, drinking too much, someone might be able to say, well, I, could, I can have a, a, a beer, but for you, you can't. So you got to give that up. So there, there are situations where you say, a thing that other people might be able to do is not a safe situation for me. I need to flee from that. I, need to, I can't hesitate like Lot and say, I want to kind of hang out where this is because I know this is not good for me. So you run from that. Uh, you, you, get, you get as far away from it as you can, even if other people uh, can do that for themselves. Yeah, it's why I don't have my social media accounts anymore. Uh, it was, there, were, there were two things that were negative in my life. In, in terms of social media, and I know right now some people listening to this are like even shaking, like thinking about not being on social media, but there were two, there were two realities in my life. One is uh, I would look at social media as a, as a leader in church, and I wanted people to like affirm and appreciate me and decisions that were made, but you all know that social media is toxic. And so when you expose yourself to that, you start to play this game where you start to live your life based on how other people view your decisions. Uh, and so what I found, what I found with me was it, it became, I, I started to become like the people on social media. I myself started to become toxic because someone would say something about some decision or something about church. And then I, in my own heart, would think, well, what a bunch of idiots. <laughs> so now I'm becoming... <laughs> judgmental, which is what I don't like to see on social media. Uh, the other one was, and this was especially for me on uh, Twitter. I don't know why. Maybe Instagram is like this too. But it seemed like pornography on Twitter is like unbelievably accessible, like even when you're not looking for it. Um, and so I, at a certain point, I was just like, I just need to get every social media platform off of all my devices because it is not bringing anything good to my life. And for me, that was fleeing from from sin. It yeah. was exactly what you were saying. Yeah. Here, here's where I want to leave us. Some of you listening right now, in fact, I think probably many or most of you listening right now, the Spirit of God is probably bringing something to mind where you know you've got to flee, where you've got to run away. And and so the the thing I want to tack on to this is, notice in the in the the thing the angel said, flee for your lives. 
This sin is a life or death matter. Sin kills. It is something that can destroy you, relationships, people around you. Uh, it is not a light thing. So if, if God is bringing to mind something that you need to do, take that with all, complete seriousness as if someone was warning you, you're about to get hit by a truck and do what you need to do. Yeah, it's some powerful truths about uh, the seriousness of sin and our need to to flee from it, not look back. That's, that's great, guys. Thank you. We hope that this conversation helped you walk through this tough passage and apply it to your life. We hope that you'll join us next Monday. Eric is going to be walking us through another passage. And in the meantime, if you are not following along with a Bible reading plan, please go to BibleSavvy.com, download it, start reading along. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Tell your friends, and we'll talk to you next week.